You are now listening to the February 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston from Biblical Stewardship. During our last episode, we shared how the obsession of Christians having to sell everything and give it to others is not a biblical concept. We looked into the story of Ananias and Sapphira and learned that what we possess and what we sell is entirely our right. God doesn't want us to give by force. God wants us to volunteer and use the right that was given to us for Him and the church, which is the body of Christ. Do you remember the story from a few weeks ago about the rich man who had a lot of wealth? He's the person who asked Jesus what he needed to do to gain eternal life. Jesus looked at him with love and told him to sell everything he had and to give it to the poor and to follow him. What was his reaction? The Bible says, When the man heard Jesus' word, he went away sad because he was very rich. What did Jesus do? Did Jesus worry and hold on to that person? The Bible definitely says Jesus loved that person, and so he spoke to him. However, Jesus didn't hold on to the man who went away sad, but left him alone. Jesus recorded the sad scene of how the man chose wealth over eternal life, just as it happened to tell this story to the coming generation. Jesus looked at him and said that it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let's think about this. We are now living 2,000 years later than the time of the man who had a lot of wealth. Therefore, we know the history of the past 2,000 years. However, at that time, the man who had a lot of wealth did not know the future, even though we do. Do you know what I'm trying to say? The rich man had a lot of wealth, and because he couldn't give that up, he gave up eternal life. How much wealth did he have? How long did he enjoy his wealth? When Jesus met the man who had a lot of wealth, It was in 30 A.D. It was the time when Jesus was living. Jesus prophesied that the temple of Jerusalem would be destroyed without a stone left on top of another. Jesus' prophecy came true in 70 A.D. The Roman army took Jerusalem and plundered the temple. Then they set the temple on fire and destroyed it. More than a million Jews were killed, and the entire city of Jerusalem was demolished. The Jews who were alive scattered all over the world, and the Jews who were captured lived as slaves. The country of Israel disappeared. So what happened to the man who had a lot of wealth? Jesus told him to sell all his possessions, give it to the poor, and to follow him. However, Even though the man listened to Jesus' word, he was concerned 
about having a lot of wealth and chose wealth instead of eternal life. What happened to all his wealth? He chose wealth over eternal life, but whose wealth did it become? You can easily imagine this, right? All his wealth was taken by the Roman soldiers. Eventually, the wealth that he chose over eternal life lasted only 40 years. That's if he lived 40 more years. Do you think his great wealth would have protected him from the fall of Jerusalem? If that person had obeyed Jesus' word to sell all of his possessions, to give it to the poor, and to follow him, then how would his life have changed? If he knew that Jerusalem would fall after 40 years, how would he have reacted? Would he still have chosen his wealth instead of Jesus' word? Or since his wealth would have been taken by others and disappear, would he have given it to the poor and followed after Jesus, who is more precious? I think he would have followed Jesus if he knew the future. So how about you? Do you know your future? I know it, not in detail, but I know a few important things. I know that one day I will leave this earth and on that day I will not be able to take any wealth with me. Knowing just this is enough information for us to make decisions in our lives. Therefore, we must focus on eternal things. What is the most important thing in your life? How can we live by focusing on eternal things and not worldly things? We'll take a look at Jesus' word. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not gather for yourselves riches on earth. Moths and rats can destroy them. Thieves can break in and steal them. Instead, gather for yourselves riches in heaven. There, moths and rats do not destroy them. There, thieves do not break in and steal them. Your heart will be where your riches are. We've heard this word from Jesus so much that we probably have it memorized. However, even though we've heard this so much and probably have it memorized, do we correctly understand the meaning of it and follow it? Jesus said, our heart will be where our riches are. Therefore, he's telling us not to gather riches on earth, but to gather riches in heaven. Then he says something very important. It's about the eye. It's because there's a relationship between our eye and our heart. Let's read the next couple of verses in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. The eye is like a lamp for the body. Suppose your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But suppose your eyes can't see well, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light inside you is darkness, then it is very dark. Why did Jesus say your heart will be where your riches are and the eye is like a lamp for the body? What does he mean when your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light? But if your eyes can't see, well, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Jesus is saying that what we see is very important. A healthy eye means it's clean and pure. In other words, if our eye sees things that are in the light, 
then that light will bring light to the dark parts of our bodies. If our eyes see things that are in the dark, then our bodies will be full of darkness. Therefore, if what we're looking at is not light, but actually things in darkness, then how much more darker is the darkness in our heart? Simply put, what we see while living affects our heart. When we live by looking at things that are holy and eternal, then our heart will be towards things that are holy and eternal. However, if we live by looking at things that are dark and worldly, then our hearts will be towards things that are dark. If what we considered valuable and holy was actually not holy, but of darkness, then our heart is towards even darker things. The sentence before this verse says not to gather riches on earth, but to gather riches in heaven. It's because our heart will be where your riches are. You ask how to gather riches in heaven. Think about what you see while living. What you see is where you're gathering your riches. If you're looking at heaven while living, then your heart is in heaven. If you're looking at earth while living, then your heart is on earth. Then Jesus says one more thing. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters at the same time. You will hate one of them and love the other. Or you will be faithful to one and dislike the other. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Now, do you clearly understand Jesus' word? If we live by looking at our wealth, then we become a slave of wealth. If we live by looking at God, then we will be servants of God. So, how can you gather riches in heaven? It's when you look at eternal things of heaven. It's when you look at God and not wealth. What is your eye looking towards today? This concludes today's session of Biblical Stewardship. Thank you for listening.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Caught Up. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? We're going to look at some more about end times and what's coming up on God's schedule. Very exciting thing is coming up next. Uh, before we do that, though, I know some of you are history buffs. Some of, I know some folks that really uh, zero in in their interest in World War II. And you'll already know this incident, but a lot of us don't. Back in World War II, the beginning of the conflict, the Philippines were about to fall into the Japanese. And General uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was there, was ordered by President Roosevelt to evacuate his staff, and so he did that. But before he did that, in March of 1942, MacArthur made a promise to the inhabitants of the Philippines, and he said, I shall return. And that's very famous. I shall return. Well, due to the nature and the ferocity of the war, um, it didn't happen for three years. But during that time, through shortwave radio broadcasts into the Philippines all the time, uh, MacArthur's promise, I shall return to try to keep the spirit of the people up during the Japanese occupation. I shall return. Well, three years later, on October 22nd, 1944, uh, General uh, MacArthur waited on shore and he spoke these words to the people of the Philippines. He said, people of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippine soil, soil consecrated in the blood of our two peoples. We have come dedicated and committed to the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over your people. The hour of your redemption is here. I think that is so cool. The hour of your redemption is here. We are here for the task of destroying every vestige of enemy control over you, the hour of your redemption. You know what? Jesus made a promise. He said, I shall return. And with all apologies to General MacArthur, I'm more excited about Jesus. I'm really more excited about Jesus. Jesus, his disciples were really bummed because in John chapter 13, Jesus was talking about leaving them. And they were like, what? How can, this is confusing. They were worried. And so in John 14, Jesus says to them, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. I'll come again in order to bring you to myself so that where I am there, you may be also. Jesus made that promise. He says, I shall return. And he's bringing redemption to the world in terms of ending the power that Satan has over this world right now. Jesus never forgot that promise. Throughout the scripture, Jesus says that. In the last book of the Bible, three times Jesus says, I am coming back. 
I am coming back. Three times he says that in the last book of the Bible. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books mention the second coming. Nearly all the books of the New Testament. Um, One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is about the second coming of Christ. Big topic. Now, when I'm talking about the verses that talk about the second coming of Christ, I used to get so confused. I don't know if you've had this issue, but it was a big issue with me. I read the, I totally believe that Jesus was returning, but I read these verses. Some of them, it was confusing because some of them talked about Jesus returning in the clouds with great glory and majesty. It's like this huge parade, a slow parade coming toward the earth. The sky would open. A revelation says every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. They'll be raised from the dead to watch Jesus return. And then there are other verses that said he'll come like a thief in the night. He'll come. One person will be taken, the other left. Another taken, the other left. Even as the lightning comes from the east to the west, so the Lord will return. Just He'll come uh, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I'm thinking, well, how? wait. How do you harmonize those kinds of verses? I could not understand. I, so when you don't understand a lot of times, you just read over it. No, oh, whatever. But then I became a Bible teacher. And that stuff, and I started looking at the scripture. And this is what I discovered. And it's just not me, but as we teach the scripture, we realize that the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, is in two stages. His first coming, his first coming is in Jesus, is the Messiah, his coming. And so the Messiah was born, that's stage one. He's returning, that's stage two. But his return is in two stages. What do you mean? One stage, the first stage of the Messiah's return is instantaneous. Boom! It's, it happens so fast, no one sees it. It's invisible. It's invisible. That's the first phase. The second phase, and the Bible says seven years later, at least seven years later, the second phase, when Jesus returns, it's glorious. And those are the verses, every eye will see him. Magnificent parade coming back to earth with the armies of heaven. We call that the glorious appearing of Jesus. So the first stage is this invisible, instantaneous return. The second is a um, majestic return to earth. So I want us to talk about that first stage. Hey, it's coming up. The Bible says it could happen at any time. So, hey, I don't want to be dumb. You know, when it's all happening around me, be the the guy who didn't go to practice. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be that guy. So uh, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. Let's look at a couple major passages. The first would be uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look at verse 50. The Apostle Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Simply, he's saying, those of you who are born again, you can't go to heaven in earthly bodies. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body is perishable. You have to have an imperishable body to get into heaven. Why? Because these are earth suits. 
These bodies are only meant to live on this earth. So to get to heaven, you've got to have a change. You can't go in a body subject to death, a mortal body. You have to have an immortal body, an imperishable body. So how's that going to happen? Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. That was a secret that's now been made known. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay, what? Who? what is sleeping talking about? It's talking about the believer's death. When a believer dies, it never says the believer is dead. The Bible refers to a believer who is dead as sleeping or as present with the Lord. Okay, so that's the, the believers uh, who have died. They are asleep because their bodies look asleep. And sleep isn't permanent. Sleep isn't scary. You're going to wake up from sleep. So that imagery, it's rest. Yeah, that's okay, imagery. But it doesn't mean that your soul or spirit are resting or sleeping. You are, when you die, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. When you depart your body, you're with Christ. So, and you're very conscious. The book of Revelation uh, talks about this. I've said that several times. I'll have to take you there and show you one of these times. So he says, uh, we, sh- we shall not all sleep, uh, but we shall all be changed. So when the Lord returns, not everybody's going to be dead. There's going to be some believers that are still going to be alive. And we shall all be changed. That word means to be transformed. It means to, to mean go under, uh, to make different. Uh, we shall all be changed fast. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a nanosecond, maybe, the twinkling of an eye was the Greek way of saying it was the smallest fraction of time they could speak of. It'd be like a nanosecond, which is one billionth of a second. We're going to be changed faster than I could do that, okay? That's like forever compared to what's going to happen in this, this split second of time. We're going to be changed. We'll be transformed. Our bodies are going to be made different. When's it going to happen? Well, we're going to hear a trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. What? Imperishable. The dead are coming with Jesus. I'll show you that in a minute. And they're going to receive their new bodies. And so their changed bodies are going to, I don't know, dive into their bodies. I don't know how that's going to work. And then this perishable, and they're going to be... uh, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And he talks about how we're going to put on immortality then. Okay, so you got it? There's going to be something that's going to happen on the spiritual calendar next when uh, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, believers, both those who are asleep, those are who are with the Lord, and believers who are live on earth, will be transformed, brand new bodies, in a moment, in a split second, that's going to happen. Okay, well, let's go. I wish that there was more about this, don't you? I want to know more. And God says, I know you do. So go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to study about prophecy, read First and Second Thessalonians. Paul is teaching this church 
that he founded. He was only there to, was with them a few months, really. But they got it. Wow. They were students of the scripture. They caught on fast. But they had questions. And Paul is answering some of their questions. So this is part of it. First Thessalonians, which is to the right of where we are. Talking more about this event. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now, whenever Paul says that, we are uninformed, right? That's why he says, I don't want you to be uninformed because you really are. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are what? Asleep. Just the same thing as he told the Corinthians, that you may not grieve as others who do not have any hope. So there is hopeless grief, and I've seen that, and there is grief that's full of hope. As believers, we grieve. We grieve, but it's not hopeless. We know we're going to see our loved ones. We know that this life is not all there is. Thank you, God. All right? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? So that means you're a believer. That means you're saved. So since we're saved, even so through Jesus, just like we're saved through Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him, that's Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. So he's talking about the second coming of Jesus at this event that happens in a moment and twinkling of an eye, this happen, thing happens instantly, he says, those who believed in Jesus, Jesus is going to bring with him when he returns. So since we believe that Jesus has died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, everybody who's died and gone to heaven will come back with Jesus, but they don't have bodies yet, but they're going to get them in a second. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord God, specifically Jesus showed him this. It's nowhere else in the scripture. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, when Jesus returns, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what's going to happen? I'm telling you ahead a little bit here. What's going to happen is those who have died and they're coming back with Jesus, it just said, no bodies yet. They are going to get their new bodies first. Their bodies will resurrect brand new, immortal, imperishable. They're going to get theirs first. They're going to be changed in a moment, twinkling of an eye. Then we get ours. We're changed they are with the Lord in the air, will be caught up to be with the Lord, to meet them in the air. Okay, just gave it all away. Now, let's read it. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise, what I tell you, first. Then we who are alive and are left will be, what's the word? Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Remember what Jesus said? That where I am, there you may be also. We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How many say this is encouraging? Amen? This is encouraging. Now, I want you to note two words. 
in verse 17. Underline them or make a mark somehow. Note them. Caught up. Caught up. I want you to note that word, those words. Caught up. Believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The English words caught up come from the Greek word harpazo. Say that. Harpazo. Harpazo. Needs to be caught up. Harpazo. So um, it needs to, let me tell you the definition of harpazo. I'm going to use an object lesson over here. I just need something. All right. So harpazo. So it means harpazo. It means to snatch away. You got it? Harpazo means to seize. Harpazo means to catch away. Are you following me? Harpazo means to rescue from destruction. Awesome? Harpazo means to take away. (laughs) Right. God's saying, enough with that illustration, dude. They got the point. You understand harpazo, right? Harpazo. So it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up instantaneously. Say that. Write that down. (laughs) We'll be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Caught up. Now, this event, I told you, I, I said it is like the invisible return of Jesus. The second coming of Christ has two phases. The first stage I'm saying is invisible. And I don't mean like some cults have set dates for Jesus. They, some, one cult said that he returned like early last century and set up his kingdom. It was invisible. No, that's not what the Bible is talking about. This is talking about an event that is so fast, nobody sees it, Right? If it's less than a nanosecond, which is one billionth of a second, we're getting it. We're hearing the trumpet. We're hearing the command of Jesus. We're hearing the voice of an archangel. We're all being changed and caught up. There's that word again. All right. We've got all that going on, but the world doesn't know anything about it, except maybe you're in mid-sentence with somebody and you disappear. <clears throat> Ooh. You know, more and more movies have this kind of an idea and theme, and people are thinking, whoa, you know, something like this could happen. Aliens. Well, it will be an out of this world experience, that's for sure. When this is called, generally by Christians, the rapture. All right, the invisible, I'm just calling it the invisible, but the return of Jesus Christ for believers are harpazo. See, we don't want to be harpazoed, right? You talk to your friends, yeah, let me talk to you about the harpazo. We're going to all be harpazoed. That sounds like something you do to a whale. No, not harpooned, harpazo. So the word rapture, it's kind of, strange. It's not in the Bible in our translation. It came, this is Greek, harpazo. Somebody translated the Greek into a Latin Bible, all right? Because Latin was more of a common language than Greek later. Then, so the Latin word for harpazo was the root of our 
English word rapture. So it went from Greek, harpazo, to a Latin word, from Latin to English, it came out rapture, okay? I'd rather, I guess, be raptured than harpazoed, okay? But it means to be caught up. So when a Christian talks about the rapture, we're talking about this event. Everybody okay with that? You're clear on that, all right. So is the rapture a new thing? Is it something that nobody's ever, it never happened before? Is this something I'm just making up? No, I think it's pretty clear in the Bible. But uh, there have been at least six people in the Bible who have experienced something like the rapture. The very first person is in the very first book of the Bible, chapter 5 of Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. This is a man by the name of Enoch, 521. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Methuselah was the man who lived the longest of any person ever. And when he died, the flood happened, okay? He fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God what? Took him. God took him. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this. You can write this in the margin by uh, verse 24. This is the reference, Hebrews 11, 5. You can write that in the margin right here. And when you're in Hebrews 11, 5, you can write Genesis, this passage. Hebrews eleven five 5 says, listen, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Or maybe it was just come with me, but he disappeared, okay? God took him. I believe Enoch was the first man who was ever raptured, never died, just went to be with the Lord. The second man mentioned that was raptured was a man by the name of Elijah. Look at 2 Kings. So we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 2, now verse 11. Elijah is walking along, talking with his protege, younger protege, Elisha, who will become another great prophet. Elijah is an amazing prophet in the Bible. Elisha will become the next prophet. So verse 11 says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. He was caught up to heaven. I would say that's a rapture. He was caught up in that. Kind of an interesting way to... It's kind of cool. Those of us who see a lot of movies nowadays, I mean, we can picture all this kind of stuff now. You know, I, probably 100 years ago, people were thinking, hmm, I don't know how that could be. Then, <laughs> 300 years after Elijah was caught up to heaven, the prophet Ezekiel records four times when he was supernaturally moved by the Lord from place to place. Sometimes it's very clear that he was moved physically. Other times it's not clear whether he was moved physically or simply spiritually. It's, not, it's kind of unclear. Now, the next person 
that was raptured is found in the New Testament in the book of Acts. If you want to go to Acts chapter 8, this is a brother by the name of Philip. Philip was a deacon in the early church. He was one of the first deacons in the church. Later on, he became a great evangelist. God gave him this gift of evangelism. His two daughters were prophets, okay? There was an awesome revival going on where Philip was, and God said, I want you to to leave all that cool thing, and I want you to go out into the desert on the desert road. Now, along this road, there is an extremely wealthy and important man. He's an Ethiopian guy. We're not given his name. He is a court official of the queen of Ethiopia. And he had gone to Jerusalem hoping to find out more about God. He had left with a lot of questions. Because as I've told you before, the Jewish temple should have been a place where Gentiles could have come in that court of Gentiles and learn about God. Instead, it become a like a, a store, a merchandising place. And Jesus had cleansed it twice, trying driven out the money changers and all, because that's the only place Gentiles could come even close to God. But the Ethiopian, he left, but he did leave with the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So to get a scroll of one book in his day had to have cost a small fortune. So he's got the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading it in the chariot, and he's come to the part where it talks about the Messiah. So he's reading it. The Lord tells Philip, run up to him and ask him if he understands what he's reading. Philip didn't do what we might do, think, are you crazy, Lord? I'm going to look like an idiot if I run up. And what if his guards do me in, you know? Philip, he ran up to the chariot and he said, are you understanding what you read? And the Ethiopian says, well, how can I unless somebody help me? It's like, yes, this is perfect. Right time, right place, right words, everything. So he explained Jesus and all the scriptures to him throughout, I mean, Isaiah. And then the Ethiopian believed, and Philip had taught him, well, when you believe, you need to be baptized. And they're on the desert road, right? But they came along some water. Guess what? Last time I was in Israel, I went along that desert road for the first time, and there is a place where there has always been water. It's like a a natural spring. It's kind of muddy, all right? But this must have been the place. So they get out, they get down, and uh, the Ethiopian says, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? And they went down into the water, and Philip immersed him, and so the Ethiopian went down into the water, came up out of the water. (sighs) All of that to get to chapter 8, verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The New American Standard Bible does a better job. It says, snatched Philip away. The guy comes up, and as, as Philip is, is coming up out of the water, all right? Now, this, wasn't, this, this time it wasn't up to heaven. This time it goes on to say, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus, 30 miles away. 
And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The apostle Paul apparently was, in some degree. St. Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, I'll read it for you. St. Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Paul says, I was caught up. There we go. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to the paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Paul says, I was caught up, caught up to the third heaven, caught up to paradise. Paul was raptured. Jesus was raptured. You know that? He was raptured. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Talks about the nation of Israel. Of course, the Messiah came from the nation of Israel. Revelation 12, verse 5. It says, she, that's Israel, gave birth to a male child. You tell me who this is. Who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron? Who's that? Jesus. So she, Israel, gave birth to Jesus, but her child, Jesus, was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus ascended into heaven, and that was a slow deal. His disciples watched him ascend into heaven, Acts 1, until they couldn't see him anymore. But there was another time, maybe after his resurrection, right after resurrection, he was caught up to God. And he came back, and he appeared to his disciples that evening uh, in the room where they were kind of hiding out. So, Jesus. So, in, the, in light of these examples, you see, rapture, being caught up, harpazo, not every time is the word harpazo used, but it's a biblical thing. It happens, right? It happens. Now, Jesus taught more about the rapture in Matthew chapter 24. Let's just look at this. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus talks about the rapture. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Would someone please explain to me why people still set dates? Why do people set dates? I mean, some of you guys know people who have bought books where people have, you know, insinuated it's this year or it's this month or it'll be, you know, it's like, what is the matter with you? Obviously, you cannot read. It's pretty clear. I'm sorry, I was reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Read verse 37. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. P. 
People misunderstand this. A lot of times people are saying, oh man, it's going to be terrible. The last days will be like the days before Noah. I mean, the days before the flood. Yeah. And I say, well, what? Well, they're going to be marrying and going to marriage parties and they're going to be, what else? What other terrible thing? Marrying and giving in marriage and they're going to be, you know, and I'm thinking, well, there's nothing wrong with that, eating and drinking. See, that's not Jesus' point, that what those things are bad. Jesus' point is everything was hunky-dory, you know? Everything was just going along like it's always gone along, you know? Well, I'm planning to go. Are you planning to go? Yeah, okay. There's crazy Christians talking about rain. Yeah, they're doing their thing, but hey, you're going to come along? Yeah. So everything's just... Status quo. And Jesus, that's the deal. I'm going to return and no one's going to know. He talks about returning like a thief in the night. No one expects a thief. If I did, I'd be there prepared. All right? That was tactful. I'd be prepared. So he's saying nobody's going to know. Okay? It's going to be a surprise. So be ready. Let's read on. Read on. He says... Verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, what? Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. And he would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The rapture can happen at any moment. We call it the imminent any moment return as promised by Jesus. I don't know when. But this is what I want you to know. This is supposed to be hope for us. This is supposed to mean that we live differently. Hey, I don't want to be caught when Jesus returns to you. I don't want to be caught doing something I shouldn't be doing. I don't want to be caught at the rapture like that. I want to also be living in such a way that I'm serving Jesus. I want to be living for him. I want to be encouraging others to live for him. because, And I want to keep my eyes on eternity. What's important, what isn't important in the light of Jesus' return. What I'm going to invest in, what I'm not going to invest in, where I'm going to spend my time, where I'm not going to spend my time. See, Jesus is coming any moment. I'm happy about that. I really am. I'm excited. Maranatha. The word Maranatha is an ancient word that means uh, come, Lord, come quickly, Lord. Okay, so Maranatha. Well, let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We're thankful that you are coming back soon. We know that you're going to come in glory, but you've also told us that you're going to come in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. You're going to catch us up to be with you, and you've, you've told us to be ready, to watch, be ready. And so we desire to do that. We want to be in your word. We want to put aside uh, sin. We don't want to be caught and then stand before you with dirty hands, 
We want to be walking with you, Lord, in righteousness, walking with you, uh, loving people, serving people, and doing everything we can to help this world get ready for what is next on the schedule. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. And everybody here said, Amen.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Sharon Lee with Refining Faith. Psalm 121 verse 7 says, The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The word protect means to keep safe from harm or injury, or to shield from duties or responsibilities. So when we read Psalm 121 verse 7, we may simply interpret it as God is the one who protects us from hardships, difficult times, or trials. But the deeper meaning of this verse is not just saying that God protects us from the difficult times in our lives means that God is the one who protects us when they happen, it does not mean that there will not be any hardships. On the contrary, there will be difficult times, trials, and tribulations, as Jesus even said in part of John chapter 16, verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. Going back to Psalm 121, verse 7, if we misunderstand this verse and think that God protects us from difficult times, then we'll be quite surprised when these times happen to us and ask, God, what is going on? How can you let something like this to happen to me? Where are you, God? But God is not the one who prevents the hardships from happening to us, but He does protect us when we suffer from them. That is why we will be able to endure our trials and look to the Lord. But we could ask a question like this. If it is that God allows difficult times and trials to happen, but protects us from when they do happen, why doesn't God just get rid of them altogether? What do you think? Do you think God is protecting us from inevitable hardships because He cannot get rid of them? If that is so, then God cannot be the Almighty God who can do anything and everything. We ought to know that it is not that God cannot stop these trials from happening, but He is allowing them to happen, or perhaps He's the one who creates them. But as we discussed last time, that is a very difficult concept to accept. We would think, God allows the hardships to happen? No way. He would not do something like that. And that is our generalization about God. But between our thoughts and the Word of God, which is correct, obviously it is God's Word. We must abandon our wrong thoughts and shift our thoughts to Word of God. The Lord Himself said in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 6 and 7, 
that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, I'm the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I'm the Lord who does all this. God explains that He's the one who gives peace and creates hardship. He says that He's the one who does everything. What is even more astonishing is that the original Hebrew word for hardship that God describes in the Isaiah passage is la, and it is translated as a bad thing or evil thing. As a matter of fact, the King James Version translates this portion of verse as, I make a peace and create evil. Then, does this verse mean that God is doing evil things? No. That cannot be. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John writes that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Then we can come to this conclusion. God has the sovereignty over not only the good things, but also evil things. Understanding and accepting this conclusion brings huge changes to us believers while living in this world. There must be something that God is trying to accomplish through trials and difficult times when the one who can stop them, the one who can prevent them from happening, does not prevent but rather allow them to happen. And that must be good thing because God is good. And if we believe that, no matter the situation, even if it is an unbearable trial, before complaining about it, we'll be able to think deeply about God who allowed it to happen and we will look forward to what kind of good things He will bring through it. In James chapter 1, verse 2-4, He writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James knew exactly the benefits of the trials and tribulations brought to us because he knew God's good purposes, which molds us through them, and he was able to tell us to be joyful. Job suffered all kinds of hardship without knowing the reasons and causes. His friends told him that he was suffering such punishments because of the sins he committed against God, but Job knew his hardships were not caused by his sins, though he still did not know the reasons for his sufferings. After going through all the hardships and tribulations, Job confesses in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Through it all, Job saw the God who he did not know before. Through his trials, Job realized God's sovereignty even more and came to trust Him even more. So will we. That is the reason why God allows difficult times and trials in our lives. In Psalm 119 verse 11, the psalmist writes, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. 
It is my hope that as we grow and mature in knowing the Lord, we can make the same confessions as Job and other psalm writers. And I hope we all will be able to see the Lord with our eyes and not just hear about the Lord. This has been Refining Faith, signing off.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.